Welcome back to the new season of Seconds Flat. We are excited to be here with you. We hope you and your families are healthy and safe, and we have missed talking to you over the past two months. Today, we are excited to bring you an interview I recently recorded with Rich Kana. Rich is executive director of the Atlanta Track Club and race director for the world-famous Peachtree Road Race 10K. In a moment when all our race calendars have been thrown for loops, Rich provides us with his insights on the changes and challenges facing the world of road racing. Moreover, Rich is a former Olympian who shares his perspective on the recent Olympic Trials Marathon hosted by the Atlanta Track Club. And be sure to check out our show notes for a link to video of Rich's furious finish at the 2000 Trials where he earned his spot in the 800 meters at the Sydney Games. This episode is sponsored by Mizuno Running. Mizuno is an official partner with the Atlanta Track Club. They recently released the commemorative Peachtree edition of their flagship Wave Rider running shoe. The Wave Rider has been a trusted training model for 23 editions, and the newest version follows in the tried and true path of its predecessors. Come to Run In, the Upstate's running specialist, to try on your pair today. And now, here's Rich Kana and Mile 53 of Seconds Flat. Rich, thanks for joining the program. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Doing very well. Excited to have you join us. Before we dive into what I'm sure is a challenging time for race directors, I'd love to look back at the last big event that Atlanta Track Club held, the Olympic Marathon Team Trials at the end of February. As a spectator there that day with an athlete competing, it seemed like a huge success. So first, just your initial takeaways from that crisp February morning in Atlanta. I think you're being kind. It was, <laughs> it was, it was uh, quite breezy. Uh, well, th- thank you for, for, for being there. We, well, it seems like it was a, a lifetime ago now, uh, but we were uh, really thrilled with, with the outcome of the weekend from, uh, from the, the time our uh, Olympic hopeful athletes started to arrive in Atlanta through our experience at the Georgia World Congress Center and the trials and the 200,000 spectators out there on the course through the end of the Public Atlanta Marathon the next day. It was everything that we had hoped it would be. What went into the planning there? And that was a multi-year process, I know. Can you maybe just give a little bit of the outline from your city's bid through how many volunteers you had to get together that led up actually to the last day in February running the race? Sure, it was, it was just over a two-year process from, uh, from the time we committed to submitting a bid to USA Track and Field and the United States Olympic Committee to race day. Uh, and the preparation certainly felt like the preparation for a marathon. Uh, there were some, some long days uh, and some long nights, some highs and some lows, 
some hiccups along the way. We, we started by making the commitment to bidding for the event. And when we made that commitment, uh, we, we did so with the understanding that we wanted to build a weekend for everyone in the running community, not just the, you know, the gifted, blessed Olympic hopeful athletes. Uh, and so we wanted to marry up uh, the Olympic team trials and the marathon with the public's Atlanta marathon. Uh, and, and, and so that required us getting uncomfortable. Uh, we're, we're best known for our flagship event, the AJC Peachtree Road Race. Uh, we've had 50 years to, to tweak and, and perfect the processes there, but this was a, a learn-as-you-go type approach. Uh, and thankfully, Atlanta Track Club has some very, very talented and committed staffers. Uh, and, but maybe more importantly, uh, we've got the best volunteers in the country. And if there was maybe one piece of feedback that we got coming out of the weekend that, uh, that that makes me smile the most uh, is the is the feedback on our volunteers, their enthusiasm, their commitment, uh, and their knowledge uh, on and about what their roles were uh, was was just stellar. Uh, and and I say this story all the time. There was a, there was a woman uh, who who found me uh, after as in in Centennial Olympic Park as the Publix was winding down on Sunday afternoon. And she, she sought me out uh, just to let me know that this was, I think she said, her 178th marathon uh, competed in races around the world. Uh, and she said that our volunteers were second to none. Uh, so just a, it's a testament to, uh, to what Atlanta is in terms of a, a running city. And that's why we, we call ourselves Running City USA. How many approximately volunteers did you have out on the course between the two days, Saturday and Sunday? So that's a good question. I think uh, between for the for the week for the weekend, I think I believe we have about three to four thousand volunteers. The numbers were were large because you have two events back to back, and you've got two days of expo. Um, but they were they were large because of the approach that we took. Uh, in executing the event from uh, from the cheer stations to the fluid stations, which required a significant amount of manpower to plan and to execute. Yeah, so I was with friends uh, at the right near the first uh, aid station there, a little after two miles uh, on Peachtree. And one, the volunteers were awesome. The energy there was was fantastic, interacting with the crowd and I think that added to the environment for us as fans and hopefully you've gotten the feedback from the athletes that that was true as well because that's what I've heard a little bit but also there the viewing you know when when you laid out the course what went into your ideas for how we're going to design this for the best experience for fans and athletes because I have not been uh, to a better fan experience regardless of the sport so you guys crushed it there what went into laying that thing out there were a lot of conversation so we we started by saying hey let, let's suspend disbelief let, let's say that we could do anything we wanted uh, and then and prioritize from there so the, we wanted to we wanted to create a course uh, that 
that challenged the the participants, the Olympic hopefuls. Uh, in other words, not just a time trial course, uh, but we didn't want to crush them with uh, the hills of Atlanta because anyone who has run in Atlanta knows that it's just not flat. Um, so so it was a challenging course, but but not a killer course, and it it needed to be or we wanted it to be a course that could uh, that could tell the story of Atlanta and its history and its personality. Uh, so touching different neighborhoods, uh, different historical areas. Uh, and then finally, we wanted to make sure that it was, to your point, spectator friendly, that you could see the athletes a number of times, uh, that you could get close to the athletes and that you could get around from the course back to the start finish area. Uh, so, so thankfully, uh, between uh, between the city allowing uh, a permit uh, to to cut up uh, the the city really almost almost into two areas in, in east and the west side for for three hours on a Saturday, we we were able to pull it off. <laughs> yeah, that was a huge undertaking. You're right uh, in the center of the city, and the size of the field this year that you had in the Olympic trials race, right? Much larger than previous years, which I think made it fun for the spectators. It was super exciting following people over the past couple of years when they got their trial standard mark. Uh, but how did that impact you all as race directors accommodating such a large field? So it was fun when we were building the bid and, and, and we built in our vision of, of being as accommodating uh, and open and as welcoming as we could to every qualifier, meaning treating them all the same. But once we, once we secured the bid and we, we, we realized, wow, what have we done? <laughs> Real operational challenges. Uh, and, we didn't anticipate having 700 athletes qualify, but when, when we looked at everything from housing those athletes to collecting their fluids to, uh, to having their uniforms checked to distributing those fluids on the course, we, we recognized and we realized that we had a lot of work ahead of us. So we divided up our staff in such a way where, where we had, very, very smart, experienced people handling very specific areas of the race. So I would point to uh, Karen Lamphere, who led our efforts on our fluid stations. Uh, a long time Atlanta Track Club staffer, a marathoner herself, a Stanford engineer. So she, she approached the, the execution of the fluids program with an engineer's mind. Uh, and that's how we got through it. Um, we, we tried to control everything that we could so that when the things that we couldn't control got thrown at us, like wind, uh, we, we could manage those singular events. That's a great connection, too. We talk about here just in your training for the race, right? Control the things that you can control. The unexpected is bound to happen on race day. And yes, in your case, some pretty serious wins came on race day. And it made for a somewhat unpredictable race, but that was 
part of the beauty of the day, right? The, the raw emotion that you get. Were there any particular highlights for you on the course that day? I didn't make it out to the course. Uh, and it wasn't until a few weeks later that I got an opportunity to watch the, the broadcast. Uh, but I, I guess the highlight for me uh, was standing at the finish line and watching, you know, from 200 meters out, you know, crowds, six, seven, eight people deep, three men and three women earn their spot uh, in, in a way that an Olympic trials is, is supposed to allow. They weren't all favorites. Uh, they weren't necessarily the fastest. They came, they prepared, they executed, uh, and the city embraced their effort uh, and the entire Olympic movement uh, in, in a way that an Olympic city should in an Olympic park that was built for such a thing. Yeah, did that 96 Olympic experience help you guys in having something to call on for such a big event? Yeah, very much so. Uh, it, it allowed us, I, I think it's, it's the reason why we had 200,000 people out on, on the streets of Atlanta. We, we set out to, uh, to, to reignite that, that Olympic fever, that Olympic flame from 96, and we did it literally and metaphorically. The, the, the Olympic flame, uh, which was right down around the, the 23, 24 mile mark, uh, was lit just for this race for the first time since 96. You know, when I uh, saw that, my, my first thought, and, I, and I'm sure you have this memory as well, is going back to the lighting in 96, Muhammad Ali, that, that moment is so powerful looking back. And I thought you guys did a, a really excellent job on just, as you said, from the finish line perspective, drawing on the power of the sport. Uh, it, it was something that made people who maybe aren't always marathon fans really interested. Unfortunately, now we get a delay and we don't get to see them in <laughs> Tokyo, right? You were an Olympian yourself in 2000. From an athlete's perspective, can you try to describe now the wrench that gets thrown into the plans here for those six athletes that qualified in Atlanta and now we have a year plus before the games? I can try, but <laughs> sure. I mean, it's you know, the, yeah, the, the, the closest thing, I guess, to compare it to is the, the uncertainty uh, that some of the athletes faced in those initial days when, when a boycott discussion was, was thrown about in 1980. My, my hope is that the, that the men and women who earn their spot uh, get their chance uh, to walk into the Olympic Stadium in the opening ceremonies in Tokyo, wearing uh, the colors of their country, of our country, um, because they, they did an incredible job earning that right. The uncertainty that they're faced with now around preparation and just the viability of the event itself is, is gotta be incredibly, incredibly difficult, but, I can say as a, as a now retired athlete and, and 2000 Olympian, it will be worth the wait uh, an extra year for them. And I talk about the Olympics, my Olympic experience, and I didn't race particularly well, but I will say that there's few things in life that ever meet or exceed your expectations. And the Olympic experience is one of those things. 
Um, so I so I have my fingers crossed that uh, that Tokyo uh, will be a, a great event in 2021. Yeah, hopefully for those six, it's even sweeter after that extra time that they have. Yeah, away. very much so. And for those for those who want to entertain a discussion about a a second trials or or you know should, should it be rerun. Um, there's a very simple answer, and the answer is no. The, the, the Olympic team has already been picked, uh, and there really shouldn't be any further discussion on it. I agree. Uh, now, this for you more as an outsider, though, uh, looking ahead, given the number of racers you had on, on the Saturday event, do you expect or would you prefer changing the standards moving forward for the cycle four years from now as to how many people run at the trials you know that number ballooned up and we hear a discussion about tightening the standards even more but uh, there's a balance of boy that was a fun event yeah i I think your your comment there there's a balance to be had Uh, i'll i'll start with this when when they're sort of a, a called a year out, there were some, uh, there was a significant wrench thrown in the works around how the athletes uh, would become eligible to be on the Olympic team. Uh, the IAAF sort of moved the, the, the goalposts or, or, and, uh, and we had to work to get gold label status. And there were some in our, in our industry, uh, coaches, administrators, athletes, agents, who, who immediately responded and just said, hey, the athletes just need to run faster. That's just what they need to do. And I just thought that was a horrible, um, that, that, that would do a horrible disservice to the athlete. There, there is no job in this country where if your boss came to you and said, hey, within the next, within the next year, you need to get 10, 20, 30% better at your job to keep your job. It just, it's just not realistic. It's not fair. So I'm really you know, proud and pleased that the right people jumped into the conversation and we were able to level that playing field. Uh, on, the, on, the, on the trials qualifying side, my own experience factors into how I think about this. I didn't develop into an Olympian uh, until uh, the age of 30. I missed the Olympics actually ironically here in Atlanta at the age of 26. Physiologically, it's a fact that that especially in the marathon and the and, and well, it was in the eight hundred, but but then as as the distance gets longer, it gets later in life. You don't you do not reach your peak until after the age of twenty six. So when you shrink that uh, that pool of people who can participate at the trials, uh, and you make that qualifying standard faster you lob off a large number of people who have not reached their physiological peak yet. Uh, And if they don't have the opportunity to train for an Olympic trials or an Olympic games, uh, then they're going to walk away from the sport. I think it's critically important that we do as much as we can to keep as many people as possible competing at a high level in the sport the larger the pool of people participating at the elite level, the more, it's just logic, the more we are going to drive ourselves to be better. Now, with that being said, was, is 500 people 
too much? Is 700 people too much? Is 1,000 people too much? I think a lot of that really depends on the venue that is hosting those trials. And, and I would say that there probably is probably a case uh, to, to make those qualifying standards slightly harder um, because there were just a lot of people in that last minute in, in terms of that window who qualified. So short answer is maybe slightly tighten them up, but there should not be a wholesale change where this becomes a true sort of elite of the elite type race. To build on that, as you describe the experiences there that you get as an athlete progressing over time and with bigger fields, my, my first thought was Molly Seidel. You know, if you take away the half marathon standard, we might lose perhaps the best story of that entire event, right? Yep. Uh, what she went through and, and how great she was that day. So yeah, finding that balance for four years from now will be really interesting to see uh, what USATF decides to do. And I've been asked a few times, um, hey, should, should we, and, and clearly I, I don't have a voice in the conversation, so, so my, my opinion doesn't really matter, but <laughs> Molly, when we set up the start line procedure, um, we, we wanted to give everyone the playing, even playing field as we've discussed, um, but we had to handicap who was on the front line, the second line, the third line. Molly was not on the front line. She wasn't on the second line. She wasn't on the third line um, because she, we, we handicapped the half marathoners farther back, but she was able to stand on the start line and she earned herself a spot on the Olympic team as a result. So there's a way to manage it. All right, looking ahead now to the summer and beyond, you are the race director for Peachtree Road Race, the world's largest 10K. And before we even get into the race specifics, do you have an estimate of the economic impact that race has on your city? I, I do. Uh, it's, it's somewhat outdated. And it's related to the Peachtree phenomenon. Um, so if you're going to do a true economic impact study, you need to have it done by a third party independent organization that does such things. Uh, and the last time we had that done, it was about a decade ago, and it was uh, by Georgia State uh, and a professor there who, who does this for a, large, a lot of large sporting events. And the, the number is not that impressive. It's it's off the top of my head, it's in the you know five to, to ten million dollar range, um, but it, it's not that impressive because ninety percent of the people who participate in the Peachtree are from the state of Georgia, uh, and the, and the way these things are measured is uh, are are really sort of dependent on the number of people that are getting in cars and airplanes and staying in hotels and so forth. The Peachtree is different from the New York City Marathon, the Boston Marathon, the Chicago Marathon in that uh, this, is, this is a largely local regional phenomenon. And we had, we had 49 states and 21 countries represented last year, but it is really how Atlanta celebrates the 4th of July. So that's interesting then. Did that make your decision to postpone to Thanksgiving easier, given that Thanksgiving has the tradition of a kind of local community turkey trot kind of day, knowing that your event is so much a Georgia event? Yes, very much so. So, and there were probably a lot of people who looked at that move and said, hey, wow, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. But if you pull back the layers of what the peach tree is, 
it is a community event. It is a family event. So we wanted to lean into what, what the peach tree is known to be to everyone here in Atlanta. And that's a celebration of community and family. So if you have to move the peach tree from the 4th of July, Thanksgiving is a logical move. Yeah, that, that does make a lot of sense now. Um, you waited a little longer than a lot of other races at the same time of the year to make your decision to postpone and others have postponed and some have canceled and a few are still seeing what happens. Why did you wait to see? That's a good question. The, the, it, so many organizations, so many leaders, uh, so many people have, have learned so much in such a short period of time around, around COVID-19, around this pandemic. Um, and, and I'd say the, the thing that most of us, at least in the event business, I, I think have learned or in the sports business is that you don't know what you don't know. And the, the immediate knee-jerk reaction for everyone was, okay, let's plan, Let, let's, let's pivot, let's change. And, and I think for some, they moved too quickly. Uh, and may need to move again and move again. Now, with that being said, we might be in that same boat because no one knows what Thanksgiving will look like yet. But what we, what we did was we, we tried to slow play this and, and operate with as much information as we could. Uh, we launched Peachtree registrations period right as the pandemic was grabbing hold of this country. Uh, and it was amazing to us in, in, in arguably the, the worst possible conditions that you could make in registering for an event. We had 45,000 people <laughs> say they want to be part of the Peachtree on the 4th of July. So we took our time in part because we wanted to have as much information as we could and we wanted to do right by those 45,000 people who trusted us uh, to make a decision around the peach tree, which is clearly really important to them. So you mentioned you may have to rethink Thanksgiving, depending on what the world looks like in a few months. What kind of timeline do you have for that? Well, we have a longer timeline than some of the other major endurance events that I referenced before, because we're not driven uh, by national and international television broadcasts, we're, we're not driven by hotel rooms or flights for the most part. So that gives us a little bit of a longer runway. Uh, we, we are driven by what this virus is doing uh, and what the experts tell us we can and should do when it comes to, to Thanksgiving. So we, we are planning right now I'm sure we'll get to that, but but we are planning for these for these next months as if we are 100% a go for Thanksgiving, uh, much like we were uh, on the Fourth of July, and and until such time that it becomes clear that that we can't, and that could you know that that could be November first. Yeah. So the person who signs up for any race and thinks I just want to go out and run a race again, 
what are the factors that you're weighing there when you talk to experts that you can convey to the registrant for your race that this is what we are considering to make sure one that we have a safe event if we have it and two should we have it or not well it's it's really interesting when you interact with the, those in the running community here in Atlanta you have everyone uh, on both ends of the spectrum and everywhere in between um, saying, hey, we, we need to be able to have a race tomorrow. Uh, it's okay to, you can't even talk about having a race. Uh, so we, we have always led with before this pandemic and we'll always lead with it and is the issue of safety. And, and if we say hey, we are not going to do this event uh, or we're not going to do this kind of event unless we know it can be done safely, uh, then at least for those who are unhappy with us, they have an understanding of what's driving our decisions. Uh, and then the specifics uh, are, are, are really driven by what we're learning each day from those experts is, is how do you mitigate masks, uh, surfaces, how many people all in one place, inside versus outside, temperature, uh, wind, how are people getting to and from your event. To be honest with you, that's one of the things that, that I spend as much time thinking about as, as, as other things, and maybe even more time is when it comes to Peachtree, is getting 60,000 people, or in this case, 45,000 people who are registered now, there safely. Uh, public transportation is a big part of what the Peachtree is. And, and will it be safe uh, to put tens of thousands of people on public transportation on Thanksgiving morning. And if, and if it is, what are the things that we need to do in collaboration with MARTA to make that happen? That's a great point. I now look back at thinking even, I went down to, to the race in February using MARTA and it was, it was crowded and we were probably just right before this whole thing broke and I ran, um, Gate River Run 15K in Jacksonville the following weekend, which is also really a, a very much community-based event, even though it was a national championship. And that was the end of racing, right? And it seems like ages ago, but it was two months. And yeah, that public transportation aspect will be big. Along those lines, are there going to be permanent changes that you foresee to the big city races whether it's yours or say a New York City Marathon, Chicago Marathon, to protect public health while we continue to race that when I'm racing five years from now, I'm still seeing these things change? I don't know for sure, but possibly. Uh, and, and they could be changes that actually end up enhancing the experience for the participant. Uh, so much like an airline, an airline is, is driven by how many, how many seats they can, they can fit and sell in one space. Uh, and coming out of this pandemic, um, they're going to be forced at least for a period of time to give people more spaces on airplanes. Uh, and, and for some of the larger events like Peachtree, what are we doing uh, to make sure that those 60,000 people uh, at the start line or for our Publix Atlanta Marathon with, with those 12,000 people there? What are we doing at the start line that give them more space 
and what are we doing to uh, in, in, in the area of public transportation to get them there? What are we doing with our start times, spreading them out more? Uh, uh, all of those things that if, if we do make changes and they do stay in place, ultimately could make that race day experience actually better for the participants. You touched there on one that I had thought of starting in waves more so. Is, is that a logical thing we could see in a in big races to divide up the crowds? Yeah, and interestingly, uh, Peachtree, long before I was here, learned how to, to execute a wave start probably better than, than any race in the world. Um, you know, we've got 22 waves at, at Peachtree, and it is a well-oiled machine. Uh, and that's out of necessity, because with that many people, you need to. But for, for races that have five or 10,000 people who, uh, who don't have waves or have a small number of waves, um, I, I think it's very reasonable uh, and rational to think that those, that those races will now have multiple waves. And again, multiple waves, more space on the start line, more space on the course, uh, more space in the finish line area uh, when you get to the finish line. So, so there, there could be some real positive outputs uh, to this really ugly situation we're in now. Yeah, to keep on that line of maybe some positive to come out of this, how can some of these iconic road races like Peachtree or the Boston Marathon serve as celebrations of running and wellness and community in the future? Have you all started to formulate some ideas uh, along those lines? As a result of, of COVID-19 and in terms of rethinking how we do it? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, as a matter of fact, we're, we're, we're spending a lot of time thinking right now what we're going to do on the 4th of July to because people are not going to be running the, the, the peach tree. So what, what can we do uh, to, to bring people together when we're not bringing them together? What, what can we do to elevate the conversation around the impact of running and walking? when we're not actually doing it together uh, in a way that is celebratory, uh, engaging, inclusive, uh, that we don't do now. And, it's, and when you think about it, it's a real challenge. There are literally tens of thousands of people who have come to the start line at Lenox on Peachtree in Atlanta for decades. And now they're being told, don't do that this 4th of July. So we have a real task ahead of us this 4th of July um, to find ways to engage with our community um, while encouraging them to not come and gather. Because if you come and gather, and some of them are, some knuckleheads will go out there because hey, this is what I do. Um, they're, they're not only putting their own safety at risk, they're putting the entire community safety at risk. And that's what this whole pandemic has forced us all to realize is that yeah, maybe, maybe I have a higher tolerance for risk than everybody else. But when I take risks, I put everybody else at risk. That is, that's a fundamental balance in our system. Of, uh, we all have these incredible individual liberties that are almost limitless, with the exception of when I start to step on someone else's liberties and put someone else at risk. And you know, what you're weighing there as a race director, we are considering as a country. And that's, 
certainly a complicated matter, way larger than do I get 60,000 people on the start line on July 4th or now on Thanksgiving. It's, it, that's well said, and it's a fascinating conversation um, for, for just the country at large. Um, but then when you drill it back down into, into, into this space, into the running community, our industry, um, it, it, it is, it, there is a, there's a balance to be had. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see where we land. Now, there has been some online debate about deferrals and refunds for all these races that are canceling or maybe moving to virtual space. Can you weigh in about those costs from the perspective of a race rather than just us who have registered and spent money on going to run? Sure. So the, the prevailing wisdom, and it was wisdom uh, for an organizer, was that when when you check someone out when they're registering for your event they are signing a waiver and they're and they are they are they are recognizing uh that this is that you have a no refund policy for for the obvious reasons of the sunk costs that you have by the time people get to the start line and can uh, you get into those a little bit just describe sure. those for everyone sure so so for for the track club to put on 30 or 40 events a year you need to have staff so before we put on one event, we have significant staff costs. Uh, so that's one. Two, the, the, uh, the supply chain built around uh, t-shirts and medals is, is, is complex um, and it takes time. So we ordered the materials uh, and the sizes for our Peachtree shirts months and months and months ago, long before anybody registered. Uh, and, then, and then you layer in commitments that you make to vendors, whether those are, those are fence vendors, uh, uh, medical vendors, security vendors, and so forth, uh, that some percentage of, of, of the commitment that uh, they make to you or you make to them has to stay in place even if the race is canceled. So when a race is canceled, all the costs do not disappear. Sure. So, so that's just, it's, it's basic economics uh, that have been in place. And in the early days of, of, of this pandemic in, in March, I, I think we all went to what we know. We all went to, hey, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, we, we can't provide you refunds. And we all tried to find some middle ground uh, that would make people feel whole in this time of uncertainty. But, I, but as it stands now, I think the vast majority of organizations out there recognize and realize that all bets are off in this environment uh, and, and that uh, it's, a, it's a necessity, maybe not, a, it's a borderline necessity uh, to give people as many options as they can, options that you would have never considered before so that they walk away from their interaction with you, uh, knowing that you had their best interests in heart while still trying to keep your business, our business afloat. And that's one of the reasons why we approached Peachtree like we did. We came up with every possible scenario so that when we made that announcement, uh, as painful as it was to say we couldn't have it on the 4th of July, we, we gave everyone every scenario they could possibly want so that they 
could make a decision that they felt good about for their own for their own life for their own schedule for their own safety yeah that effort toward goodwill uh, to a degree and also just being a little bit more nimble given the situation seems like it could be another piece to your list about how races might be better in the future and learning through this might might make uh, folks like you as race directors go down a path of thought that perhaps previously you never would have and you might even be able to do your job better because of that as have you approached it in, in that manner at all yeah we say that to the staff all the time uh, we Atlanta Track Club as an organization and other organizations that make it through this and some won't um, will be better for having have had to live through this and to figure out solutions for us uh, and for the participants and the members that we interact with. So absolutely, the, the participants are gonna be in a better position. We're gonna be better prepared. Uh, the medical community will be better prepared. So again, as bad as this is, and it's bad to, to, to see the numbers of people that are impacted, uh, both those who lose their life and, uh, and those who are sufficiently sick. But when we come out of this, we will all be better for it. Uh, to finish up, as we all yearn for a return to racing at some point, can you share a favorite road racing experience or memory of yours? either as a runner or as a race director? Well, I'll go to the race director one because as a runner, I was a terrible road racer. <laughs> Actually, you know what, I'll give you two. So I'll start with as a runner, and I've, and I've said this, this story before, so those who have, who have heard me speak before may have heard it. My first road race was at the age of six, and it was in the North Distance Classic in North New Jersey. Uh, and it was a four miler, as I recall. And as a six year old, I should never have been running a four miler, but that's beside the point. Uh, but I had never trained, never participated in, in any event like it before. A cousin of mine was doing it. My father was a runner in high school. He said, what the heck? Uh, I was last. Uh, and I was so far back that uh, my father had to uh, find a, uh, a policeman and they, and they called out on the radio and they had all of the North Police Department looking for me out on the roads because I was so far last, uh, they couldn't find me. So there, were, there was no hint of, a, of future success for me as, as, as an athlete. Uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a race director in Atlanta, the, the experience of standing at the finish line uh, at, at the Peachtree, or all of our events, but at the Peachtree specifically, is like no other. Because it is a mix of, of you know, those hardcore committed elite runners uh, with participants who just do this because this is the only race they do, and they've done it with their family for decades, to people who never thought they could walk a mile and just finish walking six miles. And it's, and the, the mix of emotions that people have as they come across a line is just, and to, is just incredible to, to, to see and experience and be part of. Uh, and, and I would give you sort of this, this, this one example. I, ran a, I went to Georgetown, ran, ran at Georgetown, 
uh, and we were in the Big East uh, back during my time. Uh, and uh, during my time, we had a good basketball team, and so did Syracuse. And Syracuse and Georgetown, we were I mean, we were like we were we were mortal enemies. But I created just this instant friendship with this guy who came across the line at Peachtree, who had a Syracuse shirt on. Uh, he came across the line, gave him a high five, uh, and we started talking. And within you know within thirty seconds. We started to figure out who we knew. You know, once upon a time we were enemies. We would have never spoken had we were sort of not at, been at the finish line of the peach tree. Um, but the peach tree brought together two people from different backgrounds in a city on the Fourth of July, celebrating all that we have in common, uh, not all that we disagree on. Uh, and and I think that is sort of what the peach tree is all about. Your Two anecdotes there are perfect for this sport. One, they're just running in its purest form, bringing people together, making us better as a group than we can be as individuals. And two, the long-term nature of the endeavor of successful distance running. Two decades after that race in New Jersey, you were in the world championships. So it, it turned out pretty well for you. And Rich, let me be the first to say, if the Atlanta Track Club decides to bid every four years for that marathon trial, I will make the trip down every time. You guys did an incredible job. And um, I'm looking forward to hopefully getting to see Peachtree on Thanksgiving morning this year. Better late than never. So thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. It was great hearing your stories and really informational. Thanks. Thanks for having me and look forward to wishing you a happy Thanksgiving at the Peachtree. Excellent. Thank you, Rich. Our pleasure. We're glad you could join us for mile 53 of the Seconds Flat podcast. And thanks again to Mizuno and the Atlanta Track Club for making this episode possible. We look forward to seeing you again next time. We're going to share some tips for training as we enter this period without much racing going on, what can you work on to be a better runner when races return? So we'll cover that in mile 54. Can't wait to talk to you then. Everybody have a great week.